Well, like I said, we're going to be in, in Hebrews. The, the verses, the sections will be up on the screen today. So as we get started, would you pray with me? Father God, you are good. And you are sovereign. You are holy. You are just. You are love. And you are with us. Lord, there would be so many things that we could understand about what it would make sense, like what would make sense about a God who is powerful and, and holy and sovereign and all of those incredible things, but the fact that you demonstrate your love and that we that you are with us, that you became flesh, that you walked this earth, tempted as we only without sin dealing with all the hardships and all the things that we face in our human bodies, willingly submitting yourself, the creator submitting himself to the creation. God, there's just no way for us to fully comprehend all that this means. But help us today, God. Help us to see part, get a glimpse through the veil, just a glimpse of what this means and what it means for us today. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted today to, it's kind of a, a Christmas sermon of sorts, usually the Sunday before Christmas. We want to really focus on the incarnation. Sometimes we do that all through the season of Advent, and this year as we were finishing up at Acts, we just, today, wanted to just talk about Christmas. We will, you know, have our service next Sunday, but as we anticipate, and in this waiting, in this season, we want to make sure that as Christians, we are redeeming this time, that we are um, taking part in that, remembering what the point of Christmas is, because we know that in the world, that kind of meaning gets very watered down and very lost. And I would just encourage you during this season to not get too grumpy about that. Let the, the world's going to do what the world's going to do. They're going to translate it in the way that makes sense to them. But we as Christians should have our hearts stirred and our affections stirred for what Christmas is really about. And what Christmas is really about is Jesus. Right? Like we all know that. That is something that even like every single one of those kids that walked back there, if I said, what's Christmas really about? Well, they'd probably say presents. But then they would say, they're like, no, 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 we're in church. If you remind them we're in church, they say, oh, Jesus, got it, yep. All right, all the other things that people will say Christmas is about, like during the season, you will hear people talk about all kinds of things that Christmas is really about. And they'll talk about the true meaning of Christmas. The true meaning of Christmas is family, you know, or it's joy, or it's peace. And what we as Christians need to do, like I said, is not, not to get grumpy that the world is trying to translate something that, that the Bible itself says that if we don't have the Spirit, we can't understand, but rather... Take those things as a reminder of what is the deeper truth and the deeper reality by those things, behind those things. So when people talk about family, then we're reminded that because of the incarnation and the cross, that we are formed with a forever family. That we are adopted as sons and daughters. That yes, family is a main idea and point of Christmas. So that people talk about joy during the Christmas season. We remember that joy is in our abiding in Christ, that in abiding in Christ, we're able to have joy in all circumstances. A deep abiding joy that doesn't just last for a couple of weeks out of the year, 
but will last and ever increase for all eternity. Or as people talk about peace on earth, we realize that the peace that the Bible talks about, that Christmas is about, is the peace that is made by God becoming flesh and walking among us, and the peace that is made through the blood of the cross, our peace with God. See, in the Christmas narrative, we see the story of the incarnation, of God becoming flesh, and it is completely unique. Those of you who've been around long enough, you know that I like to point out, like, what, are, what is unique about Christianity? And what is something that nobody else claims? And this is one of those, the uniqueness of the incarnation. There is no other story like it, that God becomes flesh and lives the life that, every, every story has one of, like, how we get to God, how we can live a good life that's pleasing to God. Christianity is the only one that says God became flesh and lived that life for us and then died as a sacrifice for us. It is unique. And as a theological idea, as this thing that we see in, in Scripture, we know that it is, there's, there's a lot that we can learn from it. There's a ton that we know because of the incarnation, things that we know. And so what, that's what I want to do today, is just, just point out in the book of Hebrews, which is not your typical Christmas book, Though I don't know why, because it's written to the Jews. We're talking about the coming Messiah and the incarnation. And so it's a really powerful reminder of everything that Christ is and what he accomplishes in the, in the incarnation. And so I want to talk about three things that we can know. And one, we can know God. That in the incarnation, because Jesus became flesh and walked among us, that through him we, we can know God. Second, that we can know that he knows us. It's not how he knows us. God created us. He already knows us. But it's how we know that he knows us. And thirdly, that we know the way. That in the incarnation, we know the path. We know the way to God. And just a quick definition of the word know the biblical, we're talking about the biblical word know here, which is more than just intellectual understanding because most of these things that I'm going to share today, if you've been in the church at any length of time at all, you're going to know in part what I'm talking about. There's a level of intellectual understanding of just agreement with an idea and understanding of the concept that in the Western world, we often say that that's what it means to know something. Oh yeah, I know that. Oh yeah, I know. I know them. The Bible, when it talks about know, to know something, means to be intimately acquainted with it. It's often used in marriage of how a husband knows a wife, how God knows his people. This is deeper than an intellectual understanding. This is intimate acquaintance with, an experience of. And so when you're thinking about this today, think, do I know this? Have I experienced this? Am I intimately acquainted with? with these realities that are communicated through the incarnation. So first, we can know God. The incarnation sheds light on the very nature of God. Look in, in Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's saying, the author of Hebrews is saying, long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to us. Like through the prophets, God spoke to us. But now he's spoken through his son, through the incarnation, through the life of Jesus Christ. And he has shed light on things. He has shed light on his word. He is the very word of God, right? So in Jesus is the word of God that God has spoken to us through him. And we know that the primary way that we can know God is through his revealed and inspired and authoritative word. And through the incarnation of Jesus, we can understand the words of God in the Bible. It's through the incarnation that through that lens that we can actually understand. As one one pastor theologian put it, He said, until we grasp that Christ is God in flesh, the Old Testament will remain a collection of stories about how men and women struggled with the call to faith. You understand that? Like without the incarnation, the Old Testament just remains a bunch of stories of people who tried to follow God, tried to obey him, and often failed. With little moments of success in there. And that's really critical. That every page of the Old Testament is setting the stage for the deliverer, for the incarnation. And so that's what reminds us, that's what keeps us anchored when we realize that. And so when we read like the story of David and Goliath, we realize that that's not about us just having enough courage and faith to slay our own giants. That the story of David and Goliath is pointing to the greater David, Jesus, who will slay the giant of sin and death in our lives. Like it's pointing, always pointing to something bigger. Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is not a book primarily about churches building church buildings. It's about the God who builds his temple in his people through the Holy Spirit. It's pointing to this greater truth. Abraham is not just an example of faith, but about God's promises to fulfill everything that he has declared through Abraham's descendants, through the one who is to come, the Messiah. A lot of troublesome doctrine that has come out of the church the last hundred years has come from forgetting that the whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And I would argue that even today that a lot of the troublesome divisions and struggles that we've had in the church has been forgetting that Jesus is the point of all of it. Old Testament, New Testament. And in the incarnation, we see the flesh of the word of God living it out. And he shows us, not only sheds light on his word, but look at um, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Holy cow, you want to talk about a half of a verse that encapsulates volumes upon volumes upon volumes of theological writings? It's this verse. In the world, the radiance, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I can't possibly go into all that detail, but here's, here's what I want us to really grasp. That Jesus, 
in his life and how we see him function. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. He gives flesh to the things that God has said throughout all time. He shows us what he means by the things that he says. And so when God says that God is love, we know what he means because we see the life of Jesus. We know what it means that God is holy because we see it in the life of Jesus. We know what it means that God is patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love because we see it in the life of Jesus. We know what it means that God is just. We know what it means that that God is holy. We know what it means. We know what these things mean. They're words that God is speaking out. But like when you look in the Old Testament, the only way to see God's glory is like, like Moses, he has to turn. He can't even see it. If we looked at God's glory, you just fall dead because we couldn't handle it. But in the incarnation, we know what he means by these things. And it's critical because how... He speaks to you and me as sinners is is how God speaks to us. Like how we see Jesus speaking to sinners in in the scripture is how God speaks to us, right? How he views people, how Jesus views and looks upon the crowds with compassion is how God views us. You know, we often, when we talk about God as Father, some of us who have difficult relationships with our fathers, um, you know, or are used to picturing kind of like, a, like the hall monitors just up there, constantly disappointed. And like, if you, if you lived a perfect day, if you just knocked it out of the park, then you might get like a pat on the shoulder and a thumbs up. But everything else is just like, well, you could have done this better, could have done this. You kind of messed up over here. I'd like to see a little more improvement over here. And yet... That is not at all what we see in the life of Jesus. It's interesting that we are far more likely to see our earthly fathers as the exact imprint of the nature of God. We project that onto God when Scripture has already told us who the exact imprint of the nature of God is. It's Jesus. So in him, we see what he means. And it's glorious. He interacts with his people up close. He displays his glory, but his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he upholds the universe. And we see him. We see what that means. So what does that mean? He upholds the, like, the world like it's all created through him. He, he, like, by the word of his power? Like What in the world does that mean? It means that when there's a great storm, we see it. Not with, he calms the storm, not with some incantation or I'm mustering up all of his strength, though it like drains him of all his power like a, like a wizard fighting a battle. Instead, he wakes up and in a half sleep says, peace, be still. That's what the word of his power means. And because we've seen that power, we know that he has the power then to purify us from our sins. He makes purification for our sins, which is how we know by seeing all of that, we know that we are forgiven. 
In the Old Testament, as they're making sacrifices, they hope they're forgiven. They hope that they're doing enough. They hope they're doing it in the right way. But through the incarnation, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we know that he has made purification for our sins. We know that we're forgiven. We know that we are made righteous by him because we have seen it. God became flesh the word of God, the glory of God, the power of God, making purification for our sins. So that's why Paul writes in Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's like, it's like being in a case with the most rigged jury ever. Because Jesus is the one who judges. And so when Paul's saying, like, who is there to condemn? Who do you think is going to condemn you? There's only one who has the authority or the power or the ability to condemn you. And guess what? He's the one who lived and died for you. That's where our confidence comes from. And it has that phrase in there that we see a few times in Hebrews that he sits at the right hand. Of God. And, and just look, what, what's he doing at the right hand of God? I mean, these are the kinds of things, if we really stepped back and thought about Christianity and what the claims of the Bible is, like we would all just be going, what in the world? Who would make this up? He's sitting at the right hand of God, and what's he doing in his victory as he reigns? Interceding for us. <laughs> going to the Father on behalf of us. Like, I mean, if you've ever interceded for somebody, and by that meaning, like, pleading to God on behalf of someone else, like, God, please, like, rescue this person. God, please, like, have mercy, show kindness to this person. Like, God, please, I know you're good. Like, would you, I just want you to encourage them and build them up. You just, like, poured your heart out. That is what Jesus is doing constantly for you and for me. It's unreal. He intercedes on our behalf. The author of Hebrews says this in, in chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is our priest, making intercession for us. I know a lot of you here grew up in a Catholic background where the priest needed to intercede for you. Confession or communion, all the, the sacraments. But the Bible is clear that that's not needed because we have a priest. Like in the Old Testament, we needed priests to make intercessions for us. You would come, you'd bring your sacrifice, the priest would determine, is this good enough? Like you're hoping the priest would then make that sacrifice on your behalf to God, interceding for you. But now, Jesus has already done that once and for all. He is our priest who is always making intercession. And he's saying like, hey, the priests were many. We, remember all the priests we've had? We've had to have all the many because guess what? They die. They got to be replaced. But Jesus lives forever. 
that he is always making intercession. He is actively your priest right now. And he's able to save those to the uttermost, wherever you are. We're given his righteousness. We belong to him, and the Father then sees us as his own. And he not only sees us, but he knows us. So we know God, but we also know that God knows us. Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So the author here is saying, because we have this high priest, then hold fast to your confession of faith. Hold fast to what you have declared that you have believed. Hold on to it. Have confidence in it. Why? Because we have a high priest who understands us, lives, lived like us, and had victory over sin for us. There's a thing that's become very popular to talk about, which is imposter syndrome. I don't know if any of you have ever felt that. But it's the feeling that if people really knew who you were, that you'd be like revealed to be this big imposter. Maybe you're seen as an expert in some field. Maybe people think you're really good at your job or they think you're a really great parent. And you're just thinking like, man, I just feel like I'm kind of, like I'm not all that. I'm not what people think that I am. And I think a lot of us deal with this in following Jesus. We, we know that Jesus saves us, and in those moments we feel comforted, we feel emboldened, empowered, um, we feel forgiven, but then we go on about our lives, and then we think, oh, but if he really knew, if he really knew. I mean, just, I'm not, like, I, I haven't been living this life enough, like, I haven't done enough today, like, yeah, I got up and I got in the Bible, but then I didn't really understand what I was reading, and I just kind of gave up. Or I haven't been, church in, been to church in a long time. I could, have, I could have done better. I missed an opportunity to minister to somebody this week. And what the author here is saying, hold fast to your confession of faith. Have confidence in it because he understands you. He's not surprised by any of those struggles. Like think about when you've gone through something difficult, like really like a challenging road. We've talked about challenging roads over the last few weeks. Like think few weeks. Think about something difficult you have gone through. Something you weren't sure you could get through. How encouraging is it to meet somebody who has walked that road and gotten through it and made it to the other side? I mean, if you've lost a spouse, you know what an encouragement it is to talk to someone who's been there who's lost a spouse or lost a child or dealt with an illness. Like there is real power in that to see somebody and say, okay, you've been there too. Like you understand what I'm going through and I can see in you like you've made it through this. It's critical. And what we need to understand is that in the, our incarnation, we know that Jesus is always that person for us. Always. 
Whatever you're dealing with, he is always, you wouldn't understand, does not hold water with Jesus. He already knows your struggle. He already knows your temptation. He already knows like where you're tempted to, to fall off and like to not believe and to not trust. And as we've talked about before, people will push back against that sometimes and say, well, but Jesus doesn't know what it's like to sin. So he doesn't know what it's like to be as broken as me because he didn't sin. That's true that he didn't sin, but that doesn't mean he doesn't know what it's like to be a broken human being. In fact, I would say that he knows even better. And we've used uh, the illustration that I love for this, which is a, the, the illustration of a boxer and asking, like, who knows a great boxer better? Like a great fighter, like, who knows that person better? The one who fights them and gets knocked out in 30 seconds or the one who goes the distance and wins? Right? Like, we talk about all the time, like, no, we know temptations because we sin. No, that's actually why we don't know temptation all that well, because you and I get knocked out in the first 30 seconds so often. Like, we don't have it. We don't have an ounce of, you think about Jesus in the wilderness resisting the temptation of the evil one? No one in this room, not me, not you, not anyone else, has ever pushed Satan to those limits. We've never gotten to that place where we get every trick out of his bag, everything he could possibly throw at us because we often fail so early. But Jesus went the distance with every temptation that you and I have ever struggled with and defeated it. And so he knows. He knows better than any of us could know. Whatever thing you have thought today, he is tempt he's been tempted by that thought. Whatever temptation you've given into, he knows that temptation better than you do. And he understands and he sympathizes. And so, because of that sympathy, we draw with confidence near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Whatever you are struggling with, he understands. Don't buy into the lie that because you're struggling with something, you need to separate yourself up from God because he can't, he can't be around you while you're struggling with those thoughts or those behaviors. And so you need to just withdraw, get your act together, and then come back to him and say, look what I did for you. No, that is heresy. It is garbage. Draw near to the throne of grace in those times of temptation because he understands you. Because he knows. And that should be our confidence. That's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He provides the way of escape. And what is that way? It's him. The disciples asked that question. And Jesus said to them, you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like he's telling the disciples about heaven and about the kingdom and about the place he's preparing. And, like, and he just says, well, you know where I'm going. And they're like, what? You never told us this. How are we supposed to know? It's the great pushback against this idea that the path or the way is obeying certain things or doing certain things for God. It is 
latching onto him. He is the way. And so we know the path by fixing our eyes on him. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So in the incarnation, God, like we can know God. We know what he means through scripture. We know what he means in the Old Testament through his words. We know, we know, we see it. We also know that he knows us. That he's been tempted as we have been tempted. And so he knows us. He is with us. And we also, we know the way. We know the path by fixing our eyes on him. The author here is talking about a race that is set before them. He's saying there's a, there's a race, there's a way, there's a path, there's a narrow road. And the question is, how do we run it? How do I run this race? And sometimes we stop with verse 1. And we say, well, if you want to run that race with endurance, lay aside, like you're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, they're all watching. Lay aside every weight and sin and run with endurance. But if we just leave it there at verse 1, then that sounds like the same old kind of recycled idea of like, okay, Jesus saves me and now my job is to just go about and try to prove my worthiness of being saved by living a good life. But verse 2 tells us how we do. Verse 1, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who shows us how to run the race. But more than that, he has already run the race for us. Okay, so here's what I really want us to make sure we grasp from this in the incarnation, is that when we look at Jesus, the life of Jesus, we see what he means in all of these things. We have to be careful that we don't look at the life of Jesus and say, okay, he's our example. There it is, how to be the perfect human. Now go try it. Right? Don't do that. What we need to understand is that Jesus is not, his life is not a bar for us to attain or to try to live up to. It is not us saying, well, Jesus did all this, like, so you can too. It is not a bar to attain. It is a promise that is fulfilled. And those are different. His righteousness is our righteousness. It's not just the example for us of how to live righteously. It actually is our righteousness. And if you want me to explain why God would do that, the Bible gives no other answer except for his love for us and his glory. There you go. And if you want to fight with that, and like go, feel, feel free. I've fought with that a lot in my life. But he is a promise fulfilled. His righteousness is our righteousness. And in fixing our eyes on him, the author or founder and perfecter of our faith, so the perfect way, the way who wrote what it looks like to be fully submitted to God and to live the life of abundance that he has offered to us, that by fixing our eyes on him, we are seeing what is already credited to us by faith. 
Do you understand that? Like by watching him, we see what is already credited to us by faith. And what is promised that we will become. So, have you ever watched Jesus in the Gospels and seen him interact with people and thought, man, I wish I interacted with people like that. Like, I wish that I had that much compassion on people. I wish I could speak with that kind of authority. I wish I had that kind of faith. I wish I I loved people that way. When you see that, understand that that is what is credited to you and it's a promise of what you are becoming. And that one day you will be in faith in Christ. Not apart from faith. It's not just given to anybody and everybody. Like it is like we enter into this relationship by confessing our sin and putting our trust in him, by dying to ourselves and saying, no, I'm exchanging my life and now I want the life of Christ. And with that life of Christ, we get his righteousness and the promise that this is who we will be one day. Paul says it this way in Philippians, not that I have already obtained this, so that, that, that what's been credited to him and what is the promise of who we are becoming, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, I'm not already there, right? But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Right? So he looks at that life who we're called to be and he says, I haven't obtained that yet. Jesus has saved me, but I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I press on to make that identity, that identity he's secured for me, make it my own. Why and how? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Not because I figured it out, not because I made a decision, not because I had like a New Year's resolution if I'm going to get my act together, I'm going to live this life, because he has made you his own. By grace. And he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To forget these things. And now you start seeing the parallels with Hebrews of like laying aside the sin. Like we consider him, we look to him, what he's already secured for us and what we are becoming. And I forget all this stuff behind and I press on towards this to make this identity my own. We consider him, right? We consider him and as we look at Christ, we see his resistance to temptation, right? He tosses aside everything that entangles him. Satan's temptation in the wilderness, tossed aside. The attempts by the religious to discredit him, tossed aside. The temptation in the garden, tossed aside. So draw near to him, confess your sin, and gain help in that temptation. What weighs you down right now? What's hindering you from laying hold to the identity that Christ has already secured for you? What is it? Is it busyness? Is it fear of others? Is it a fear of of what's going on, like being out of control in your life? Is it an addiction? Is it an illness? Is it a lack of perspective? Get rid of it. Get rid of your dependency on that and how we think our lives are supposed to turn out and trust our good father who's saying, this is what I'm forming you into. 
This is better. Toss it aside as you look and see Jesus tossing aside. Think about all the things Jesus was offered. I'll give you this whole kingdom. I'll give you all this power. I'll give you all, this, all these followers. And at every side, he's like, no. What God has for me is better. What the Father's will is is better. Do we believe it? We see him run the race with endurance. How? How do you then do that in day by day? With joy that's set before you because it's better. Keeping your eyes fixed on the prize of what Jesus is offering you, what God is offering, our good Father is offering to do with you. To do day by day, to run the race with endurance, day by day, to buy into the fact that your life is not defined by certain big moments, whether good or bad. There are many in this room who cannot shake a big mistake or a big sin in your past. You feel like your life is defined by that. It is not. It is defined in the small moments, day by day, moment by moment, trusting that Jesus is better and pressing on toward the prize that God has given you. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's consider, consider that verse. Think about the hostility. That's, that's an understatement, right? The hostility against Jesus, I'd say so. And why did he endure it? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He endured all of that for us. So that we might be able to run the race too. He endured being flesh so that we would know and we would not grow weary or faint-hearted. So we wouldn't give up. Think about all the things Jesus dealt with in being flesh. Like he would have dealt with headaches, with sickness, with hard people. And yes, enduring hostility against himself. Why? So that you would not grow weary or faint-hearted. So you would know the depth of his love and his power. So run the race. Press on to make it your own. That's what I want for you in the incarnation. To press on to make the identity that Christ has already secured for you your own. Don't waste your time with all these other trivial pursuits that draw us and pull at our hearts and gather us, like pull us away. Don't reduce Christianity to just avoiding those things that we think we really want, but realizing that by looking at Jesus in the incarnation that that is what life looks like and that he's already secured it for us and he's already promised us that he will complete the work that he has started in us and that it's truly yours to experience it by pressing on. That's why we are constantly pointing to Jesus here. That's why we take communion every week and we use that much time in the service for communion, that you would fix your eyes on him, to consider him, his life, his death, his resurrection, that you would not grow weary or faint-hearted, that you would run the race. That is the power of the incarnation. How else would we know these things? How else would we experience these things? How else would we have the strength to overcome temptation or endure? But in this, that over 2,000 years ago, God became flesh and walked among us. He entered the world humbly. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved. 
And he raised again in the power of the Holy Spirit and that that same Spirit now resides in us to make us what he's already declared that we are. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is the meaning of Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for so many things. God, right now, God, I'm just so grateful for the incarnation. Thank you that in the actual flesh and blood life of Jesus, we don't have to guess what you mean by all of these things. We can see it. We see what you mean when you say you love your enemies. We see what you mean when you say that you adopt us as sons and daughters. God, we are so thankful that we get to know you in that way, that you would choose to reveal to us who you are, your nature and your works. And God, that you would show us that you know, that you don't just see us, but that you know us, that you understand us, and that you show us the way to latch on to Jesus to lay hold of what he's already attained for us in faith. Lord, I pray right now for anyone who has been holding you at arm's length, but is saying that I'm done with that. I want to lay this other stuff aside. I want Jesus. I pray that right now, with whatever has happened before, that in faith they would put their trust in you. They would turn and repent from their sin and trust in you who's able to make purifications for our sin. Who's able to forgive us and redeem us and renew us, restore us. And God, for all of us that have done that, that have received that grace and by faith have been saved, that we would then lay hold to the identity that you have secured for us. That we would toss aside by looking to you, that we would toss aside the sin, realizing that it is garbage. But that you, what you offer is better. Help us to press on, knowing that you see us, you know us, you are with us. In the life, death, and name of Jesus Christ. Amen.